Hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, we have two of our favorite uh, Bedford and Sullivan sons, if you will. Uh, uh, let's start out in Anderson, Indiana, with Mr. Carl Erskine. How are you doing today, Carl? Hey, I just, excuse me, I'm fine, and uh, we're in the wintertime here, just like you're having there, so we're we're making out fine. Yeah, it's a little chilly here on the East Coast, and uh, as you said, it's um, over in the Midwest, it's uh, a little biting as well. Uh, uh, I know somebody else is in the cold right now uh, on the east side of the Hudson in New York State, and that is author Bob McGee writer of the greatest ballpark ever. Bob, it's been a while, but we're thankful to have you back today. Well, thank you, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Carl. Well, let's get right into it. You know, it, it, it's bittersweet because we are talking about uh, uh, two people that we've lost. Unfortunately, we've lost uh, a few over the last year in the game of baseball. Um, but, uh, Carl, I want to start with a fellow Dodger of yours, Tommy Lasorda. Uh, you know, I... When, when he did pass, unfortunately, um, I was able to, to look up some of his, uh, his stats prior to managing. And, and I, I want to start all the way back and get your uh, remembrance of him in uh, 1954 and 1955 when Tommy first came up. Uh, excuse me. I have to turn my TV down, and I didn't hear that question real plain. Oh, sure. Sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, I was just wondering if uh, we could go all the way back uh, to the mid-50s and your uh, memory of Tommy when he first came up as a pitcher. Yeah. Yeah, well, Tommy and I uh, were acquainted in that big farmer's farm system of Branch Rickey's. Uh, had almost 800, I think 780 players under contract. So Tommy and I were one of those. Uh, and hoping we get a break to move up. And I got to leapfrog a lot of that because Mr. Ricky liked the fact that I learned, learned quickly. And Tommy was also a, out, an outstanding uh, AAA pitcher. So his two times, I think, that he tried to make the majors, he, he just had a bad break both times. Uh, he got hurt uh, covering home plate on a, a wild pitch. Wally Moon un, unintentionally cut him pretty bad on the knee, uh, scoring from uh, third base. And so he had some real difficulties trying to make the starting lineup, and, it, and he loves to tell the story that it finally got down one year to one spot open for a left-handed pitcher. And there were two candidates. He was one and he said, you know what, I was an experienced AAA pitcher. I was sure I was going to get the job. And you know what they did? They kept this left-handed kid, untried, named, what was it, Colfax, Colfax, something like that. <laughs> he said, he, you imagine they kept this untried kid instead of me. Yeah, 19-year-old bonus baby. Uh, uh, I guess Sandy probably sat on the bench most of the year, too. Uh, 
probably only using them towards the end of games. You know, like they had that. an unusual mm-hmm. rule in those days. You you probably both know it. Uh, you couldn't option a player to the minors if you paid him a bonus of 20000 or more, I think it was. But if you're a bonus player uh, up so high, the owners had a rule that you couldn't send him to the minors. You had to keep him on the major league roster. So that's how Koufax came to us right off the sandlots of Brooklyn. And he was paid a $20,000 bonus, I believe, was the amount. And so he was not able to be sent to the minors. So Koufax had a very difficult time in his first few years because he never got that minor league training that you almost have to have in the, in baseball uh, to make it at the top. So he struggled for, I'd say, five years. He was a, a 500 pitcher. I think he was like 35 and 36 or something like that. And, and so he had a very early start with us on the bench, but he had to learn on the job. And that really, set, it really held him back. And that's why it took him about five years before Norm Larker, a catcher, a backup catcher, caught him one day and he said, you're working too hard. You're trying to throw the ball right through the backstop. Let up about 80% and your ball moves better. Well, that was when Koufax magically seemed like out of nowhere became the most dominant pitcher in baseball. And it was Norm Locker, a backup catcher, that gave him that uh, advice, and it it made him a Hall of Fame pitcher. And and when you know, looking Carl, at Tommy, it, it, it's interesting that he was the Montreal Royals' winningest pitcher of all time. What do you think uh, was the problem at the major league level? What what exactly happened for Tommy that he couldn't get it together? Well. Tommy had a terrific curveball, and a good curveball in the minor leagues can make you a winner. Uh, he didn't throw real hard, but he had a he had a reasonably good fastball. But he came up the first time, and he he was nervous when he was started. He walked two or three batters early that first inning, and then he wild pitched. And covering home plate, Wally Moon was on third. Covering home plate, he was so determined to block the plate. And, of course, he didn't have any of the catcher's equipment on or anything, but he he got his knee cut real bad. It almost cut his, uh, his kneecap, was almost cut off by Moon sliding, not intentionally. Well, that was the first time he... He had a shot, and then he had one other time later because he had to heal from that that real bad injury. And uh, he just he was wild. He just he was wasn't impressive. And so after a couple times, uh, he stayed in Triple A. But uh, Tommy was a bulldog. He was a fighter and a bench jockey. You know, he, you know, Tommy was always loud, but he was loud on the bench too. And it was kind of like he had to—he hated to be on the bench. He wanted to be in the lineup. But as a pitcher, of course, he—he he was out of the lineup uh, 
on his rest days. But he was a loud mouth on the bench because he, he wanted to be in the game. Carl, was he also loud on the mound? I mean, was he, uh, you know, he's he's impressed me as the type of uh, pitcher who wasn't afraid to knock somebody down. <laughs> well, Tommy was a good pitcher in AAA. He, he's he been in AAA so, long, so many years. I'll bet he still has records of innings pitched, maybe, or something. But uh, making that jump from the AAA to the majors, it, it didn't seem like that should be that much difference. But it truly is. Uh, there's there's one interesting uh, fact. I think it's a fact. Some hitters hit better in the big leagues than they did in AAA. So why is that? Pitchers are tougher at the top, yes, but they also have good control. In the minor leagues, you're hitting a guy throwing a hundred plus, and they don't know where the ball is going to go. <laughs> so once they make the majors and they have decent career uh, control, uh, hitters hit better sometimes in the majors than they did in Triple uh, A. Just because they had more presence in the box, <laughs> right? Interesting. Well, just more at the plate. He had a wild pitcher. Uh, there's always a caution. And now, in my era, uh, I think it was Pittsburgh with Mr. Ricky there uh, invented the hard hat. Before that, and that would have been in the, I don't know, maybe early 50s. And, and Mr. Ricky came up with this hard hat and required his players to wear this hard hat, even on the bases. And so it was a, it, it looked straight. It looked like a, a coal miner's cap. <laughs> it had a light on the front. But uh, guys all laughed at that until they saw a couple of guys get hit uh, on the head. And the only protection the old caps had was a very small uh, fiberglass insert on the sides of the, of the cap. So once once they saw a guy get hit with a hard hat and it just ricocheted off, then the guys got okay wearing it. But it was it's strange looking in the beginning uh, compared to the regular major league cap. But it finally caught on. Carl, Carl do you think that going to uh, the idea of some people uh, performing better at the majors than they do in AAA, do you think sometimes it's, it uh, has something to do with maybe just getting becoming a little too passive once you think you've been in there for a little longer than like once you've developed you need that the major leagues but you've been you you're staying down there. Well, it's a tough way to call that because each player has to qualify in in several skills in baseball. You know, uh, it's it's all it's often thought of how many skills do you need to play baseball well because you got the bat that's one set of skills you got the glove another set of skills you got to run the bases another set of skills so uh, it, it takes it takes more in baseball to get to the top in terms of serving your time in the minors there's several skills in baseball that you have to combine and be able to do. Now, some players had three of them. Some had four. 
a guy like Willie Mays had five and more. But there, there's several different skills in baseball. And uh, some players make two or three of them, but you got to have all of them to get to stay at the top in the major leagues. That's mostly I'm talking about non-pitchers. Uh, a pitcher, he's got one set of skills, and that's how to throw and throw strikes and field his position. He got those one set of skills. Uh, the hitter in baseball has to be a good defensive player as well as a good hitter, uh, an adequate hitter. So, yeah, baseball's uh, you got the glove skills, you got the bat skills, you got the running skills, all, all that combined to make you a, a major leaguer. Carl, when you look at uh, Henry Aaron, for example, uh, during those years, I mean, obviously uh, a great five-tool player, yet um, never really got the ink while he was playing that was commensurate with uh, what the other greats of the game were getting at the time. Uh, I suppose some of that was due to the fact that he was playing in Milwaukee instead of uh, uh, New York or any of the major media markets. Uh, what was it like facing him in the middle of that Braves lineup? And and also, you know, the fact that he had Matthews and, and, and Crandall and some of the other great players that were around him. I, I would imagine that uh, uh, especially during 56, 57, that could be a long day or a long night uh, when you're facing down those guys. Yeah, you're right. You you couldn't actually uh, walk around Aaron because you did have other strengths in the lineup. Matthews, Matthews had the quickest bat of any player I ever pitched against. And the first few times I pitched against Matthews, I thought he took the pitch, and then he swung. I mean, it was just a fraction different, but he was so quick that you could actually tell that he could wait a fraction longer to swing. And then he had this really quick hands and quick bat. So, yeah, it was you couldn't walk Aaron just to get to the next hitter because Matthews was too tough. And, and Henry, in terms of his consistency over the years, uh, typically always in that, that 40, 50 home run a year, uh, category over so many years. Uh, uh, what can you say about a guy like that who just delivers it every day? Well, it was it's you described him very well. He uh, he hit when he first came up. I believe in '52 was his first year, and we watched him in batting practice. And he hit line drives. He hit bullets, uh, close lines, as they refer to him in baseball. Uh, he didn't hit as many home runs in the early years. I don't know why that didn't come till later when he hit so many home runs. Whether he changed, uh, the rumor was, although I never saw it, that he came to the big leagues actually hitting cross-handed, or he had hit that way in the minors. But by the time I pitched against Aaron, he did not swing cross-handed. He had uh, gotten out of that. But he his his uh, quick bat, and then he he was a pretty good uh, selective 
uh, hitter for the strikes. He didn't swing at a lot of out of the strike zone pitches, as opposed to Mays. Mays and Yogi Berra, two two that come to mind, that you would call bad ball hitters. They didn't have to hit a strike if they could reach the ball uh, high outside or wherever. Uh, Mays especially like a high outside pitch outside the strike zone because he could get his arms out. And uh, so that was a characteristic of uh, hitters. They, uh, some hitters you dub or were known as bad ball hitters, and Aaron was one of them. And what's amazing looking at his numbers, uh, you know, some people, like Bob, you said that he would hit in the 40. 40- uh, 50 home run range. It, it's remarkable. He never hit above uh, uh, 50 home runs, and I I can't take a look exactly at what his highest total was, but it, it was somewhere uh, either mid 40s or just a little upper 40s. Um, it's remarkable, and and he had something along the lines of 2,297 uh, 2, RBIs. I mean, he was a machine, a consistent machine. What was the approach, uh, how, you know, like with everything you said, how would you approach him in any random at that? Well, you have to know one thing. The good hitters, the guys that hit 300-plus, they're going to hit your best pitch. Uh, you can make the good pitch in the right spot in the strike zone. You can do everything right. But the good hitters, like Musial, for instance, they would get their hits, and you could count on it. I remember my first day in the big leagues, Hugh Casey, an uh, older pitcher, talked to me in the outfield. He said, son, I've never seen you throw, but there's some guys in this league that hit 340. They're going to hit every year, and they're going to hit you just like they hit the rest of it. So my advice to you is, kid, bear down on the hitters in front of the good hitter and keep them off the base. So when the good hitter gets his double, it won't hurt you. Great advice. Great advice. Pitch to the guys ahead of the good hitter as as hard as you would pitch to the good hitter himself and keep them off the base. That was great advice. You know, Sam, you were you were remarking about uh, Aaron. His his high total was 47 homers in 1971 when he was uh in Atlanta, uh, and other than that, uh, he hit 44 homers in uh, four different seasons. Ironic that, of course, he wore number 44, but uh, uh, three of those times uh, he led the league in uh, in 66 and 63, and uh, also in 57. But yeah, the career high of, of 47 homers. So. It's remarkable when you think about the breadth of that career um, uh, spanning 20, 23 years in the major leagues. It's uh, uh, really quite something. Uh, one one uh, mention about Koufax, when you were talking about Koufax earlier, Carl, uh, one of your old teammates, uh, Danny McDevitt, uh, I, I visited him one time down in Social Circle, Georgia to talk about that last game at Ebbets Field on the 24th of September in 57. And um, earlier that year in spring training, 
uh, McDevitt happened to be taking flying lessons, and uh, apparently he took uh, Sandy Koufax along with him on a couple of these lessons. And Buzzy Bavesi called him in and said, uh, so, uh, Danny, uh, I, I hear you've been taking flying lessons. And, and McDevitt said, yeah, that's right. And uh, Bavesi waited for a moment, and he said, well, that's okay. Just don't take Sandy. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't imagine that. I imagine that McDevitt came out of that a little chastened, but uh, uh, still a very funny story. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's interesting, you know, uh, it it sounds like, uh, and I haven't done enough discussion about Buzzy Bavese, um, but Carl, why don't we, we uh, we can certainly uh, uh, tangent real quick to uh, Buzzy. What are some of your memories of, of the general manager? Yeah, Buzzy, Buzzy, I felt, you know, close to Buzzy because uh, he'd been there and he did the salary negotiating, and uh, so that that made you pretty close to him. Uh, he was a shrewd uh, operator. Um, it, the story goes, I don't think I can confirm it, but that he was negotiating with Hodges, and they both had a different number they were trying to reach. And so Buzzy said, look, I'll put uh, – I'll put your number, your salary that you want number, and I'll put my number on a separate sheet of paper, and I'll put a third sheet in uh, with the number on it in between, the amount in between. And so supposedly Hodges agreed to that. And then the story goes that Buzzy put his number on all three pieces of paper in the in hat. <laughs> so he was a shrewd operator. Oh, my did you feel like he was uh, uh, fair in salary negotiations, uh, uh, and did it change well, always, at all? He always after, had the backup. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I he was always had say, the backup of saying, "I've been a, I've been assigned uh, a budget, and and uh, I can only go, I can't go above this budget." And uh, the story goes that when he negotiated with Drysdale. That uh, and Koufax went in together, and uh, they were the one-two punch uh, of the pitchers. So they went in together to negotiate, and it's, the story goes that he he negotiated with Koufax, and he arrived at a salary. And then when he got in the same room with Drysdale, uh, he was. He didn't have enough budget to go the 10000 over that Drysdale was asking. So he claimed, Buzzy did, that he gave it to him anyway over budget. And when he got his bonus at the end of the year, after a good year and a lot of good attendance, O'Malley said, I noticed you gave uh, Drysdale more, uh, or whichever one, Drysdale more than Koufax. And uh, so your bonus is going to be $10,000 light. <laughs> so the money he gave Kofax, he took it out of Buzzy's salary. That was Buzzy's story. Well, 
still uh, for the Dodgers, I'm sure whatever sort of deal they cut, it was a pretty uh, pretty good deal for them when you're thinking about those two pitchers. There was uh, well, there was there, you so know the money than... wasn't there uh, in the early days before television. Uh, it was only after television got well uh, established that the salaries began to really go out of sight. But in the years before television, the revenues were not that big. Uh, if a club cleared a million dollar uh, ticket sales. They made money. If it fell under that, a lot of clubs didn't make any money. But when TV came in, then those numbers all went up. And it seems that it helped from the uh, um, negotiating perspective for Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale that they were, you know, in uh, Tinseltown at the time. They, they, you know, they, they probably had a lot of of thought process just having watched what was going on in entertainment. I negotiated my salary one time and we got we got within what I considered five thousand dollars light. I couldn't get that last five thousand. And I'd I'd won twenty and lost six. And I got uh, finally I got to twenty eight five and Buzzy wouldn't go a nickel higher. So in desperation to get a bigger pay payday, I said, Buzzy, I'm having some teeth filled, uh, fixed. Uh, will you will you pay that too? And, and he said he finally agreed. So I had, uh, I think, nine gold inlays put in. At that, that's how I got my <laughs> extra extra salary in 1954. I'd won 20 and lost lost six in. 23, 53, so my 54 salary, uh, that's how I got my raise, or the rest of it. I still got a couple of those gold inlays. I still have a couple of those gold inlays. So I, I, one of them was in a tooth that my dentist said had to come out. And I said, I want that gold inlay. I want that nugget. And he gave, cleaned it up after he took it out and gave it to me. I made a tie tack out of it. So... I would oh, tell hilarious. people at baseball functions when I wear that tie tack, this is what's left of my 54 raise. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Carl, how about that, uh, that, that 56 season, getting back to the Braves, uh, it came down to, you know, just the, the end of the season, really tight race. Uh, of course, you had one of your no-hitters that year. Uh, Magley had a, a no-hitter late in the year. Uh, Braves had been in Milwaukee at that point for you know since '53. Uh, they were they were doing well. They were drawing well. Um, the Dodgers really sort of uh, really put it together towards the end of of that season. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know that competition with the Braves during that that season? Well, Burdett was uh, the pitcher that we had the most trouble with. <clears throat> Spawn, one of the great pitchers of all times, a left-hander against our right-handed lineup, didn't have as much success. So they didn't pitch Spawny against us very often. That used to bother him, too. Uh, they, in Evans Field, they, would never, they finally quit pitching Spawn against the big right-handed lineup we had. 
<laughs> it really irritated Spotting. Uh, he won 353 games, but he did have trouble in Evans Field. So uh, Burdett was really their lead pitcher against us. But uh, uh, those those years <laughs> are a long time ago. And my wife says, Carl, how do you remember all that? And you can't get the gro- grocery list right. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have to remember that no-hitter you threw that year. <clears throat> Say not, that again, I'm sorry. Back. No, you have to remember the no-hitter that you threw that year. And uh, oh, not yes, to mention the one back in 52 as well. So. Right. Well, the sweet, uh, the sweet one was uh, against the uh, Giants and in front of the home crowd at Devis Field. Uh, that was such a rivalry in New York that uh, your manhood was on the line when you played the Giants. And uh, so that was a sweet uh, victory because it was in front of the uh, – the Evans Field fans, and I guess the Giants—you can't imagine the rivalry that existed in New York between the Dodgers and the Giants. Uh, it was—it was fierce, and uh, so that was just—that made that no hitter especially good for me. Yeah, that must have been really nice. Uh, I, going back to uh, Tommy Lasorda, I'm wondering if you have any memories of. Firstly, the first time you actually met Tommy, and then anything you can recall from uh, hanging out with Tommy over the years. Well, my relationship with Tommy uh, came through. Uh, I had my shoulder problem, and they sent me to Montreal, Triple A affiliate of the Dodgers, in which Lasorda was a star pitcher. Uh, he'd stayed in Triple A several years. Uh, I'll bet you he might still have some records in that AAA International League because he stayed there for many years. Uh, but what Tommy's problem, he, he kind of was snake bit when he came to try to make the big club. Uh, he was wild his first time out, and uh, Wally Moon was on third, and he wild pitched. And then he's such a bulldog when – uh, Wally Moon was going to score now at that wild pitch, and Tommy tried to block the plate. And in doing so, Moon unintentionally cut his almost cut his kneecap off when he slid, and Tommy tried to block the plate. So that took his chances to stay with us. That took it away that year. And so he just had uh, he was wild the next time he came in a year or two later when he got a shot. And so he just, he just, and then finally, Tommy's story was that there was a one spot open for a left-handed pitcher on our roster, and he said, you know what, they, I'm an experienced AAA star, and they had another pitcher, a left-hander, and one spot open, and they kept this kid called, what was his name, Colfax or something, Colfax. They kept him instead of me. That was Tommy's story. Were you surprised, Carl, when uh, Tommy got the managerial post for the Dodgers? Were you thinking that the Dodgers might pick someone else? No, I'll tell you what. Uh, in some ways, it didn't surprise me. He had he had been in the minors uh, 
and they recognized after a while that this manager of Lasorda and the Miners was sending all these players to the big leagues. And that, that was that famous infield of Billy Russell and uh, Garvey. Uh, so they finally, the front office, began to realize this guy's doing something right. He's sending all these guys that comes, become superstars. So the, their attention was focused on him because of the good players he was sending up. And then he and Alston were so different uh, in personalities. And actually, Walt didn't like uh, Tommy very well because Tommy was a boisterous, loud guy, and, and Alston was just the opposite. But the, the thing they had in common, they were both Ricky disciples. They both were in the system where Branch Ricky's unique uh, techniques of, uh, of managing and coaching, uh, they were both raised as Ricky disciples. So they managed very much alike, even though their personalities were so different. So I, uh, I was surprised somewhat that Tommy became as good a manager as he did. Uh, I think history shows that not very many pitchers become major league managers. It happens some, but mostly an everyday player, and particularly catchers, become managers. And we were all disappointed that Campanella got injured uh, and paralyzed because we all felt like he was going to be the first black major league manager. He had all the qualities of uh, handling uh, the pitching. And uh, I pitched probably 1,500 innings to Roy. And he was, I won't say smart, I use the word savvy. I don't know what that really means, except he had a, an instinct for calling pitches against hitters, and he had a, a great memory about how to pitch to various hitters. In those years, there was only eight teams in each league. So the seven other teams that we played in a 154-game schedule, uh, we faced over and Well, if we, we faced 11 at home, 11 games at home, and 11 on the road to each of the other seven teams. So we faced the same hitters over and over and over again. Well, Kevin Allen became so astute at uh, doing the things that you wouldn't expect to do because you faced the same hitters so often and became a mind game. And Campy was excellent at remembering and how to set these hitters up. So I know he helped me a lot as a pitcher. He probably helped Don Newcomb more than any pitcher because Nuke was one of the early black players, and he had a little trouble adjusting to uh, handling the riders and uh, the big league uh, atmosphere. So Campanella really helped all of us, but he helped Newcomb, I think, more than, than any one of us. You know, it's Can interesting. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead, Sam. No, I, I just was, no, was... Uh, going to say, Carl, can, can you hear him saying uh, the same team won yesterday is going to win today? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I could hear that in the clubhouse. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. He, was a, he was a cheerleader. Uh, 
in his own way. And I remember uh, his locker was uh, back-to-back with mine. And uh, Campy used to say, now, you young pitchers, you just you just throw what Campy puts down there, the signals. You just throw what I call, and I'll make you a winner. So I took a box score in one day, which I'd lost the game the day before, and I showed Campy this. I said, Campy, look at this box score. It said Erskine, losing pitcher. Now, you called all the pitches yesterday. Why doesn't that say Campanella losing catcher? <laughs> he said, "He said, well, you could always shake me off." <laughs> but anyway, now, uh, and Bob, um, uh, sorry, Carl. I was going to ask. It was interesting about it. You, you said, you know, uh, that he got injured and that uh, kind of disqualified him. But but it's interesting to, to think about the fact that you know, being handicapped probably shouldn't have necessarily disqualified him. I think at the time, uh, play, you know, some of these ballparks certainly couldn't have been as equipped for a handicap manager. But it's something that this this day and age, you know, when when you're thinking about it, uh, it if if he was qualified for the job, the handicap part shouldn't necessarily disqualify him. Well, I'll tell you why your comments are right on target. You may not remember that uh, Lasorda, when he became manager. He went to Campanella, and, and Campy's in a wheelchair, and he went to Campanella, and he said, uh, I want you, he told Campy, I want you for one of my coaches. And Campanella said, me, a coach? I can't coach in a wheelchair. No, he says, do you know anything about catching? Campy says, yeah, I know something about catching. Well, you're going to coach my young catchers. And uh, Socia was one of them at that time. But Campanella became an official coach on the Dodgers in a wheelchair. And uh, in a way, because of his attitude, and he'd go and speak at the hospitals to paraplegics. And, and in a way, Campanella had a, a huge impact uh, in his life after he was injured and was in a wheelchair because it never kept him from encouraging others and he was a cheerleader, and uh, and he could handle young pitchers. I I'm just guessing, but in ten seasons that I pitched to Roy, my guess is I pitched to him close to 1,500 seasons, and uh, he was such an, uh, an easy he, he he controlled a catcher has a skill that nobody notices. But Campanella was excellent with young pitchers. When you're in trouble, you always want to pitch faster. You always want the ball back. You want, and he wouldn't let you do that. In a quiet way, he he set the pace for a young pitcher who, in trouble, wants to pitch too fast. He wants the ball back quick. And uh, Campanella, that was one of his skills. It, it was un unacknowledged uh, that that but I can tell you as a fact that he controlled the pace of young pitchers who wanted to grab the ball and fire it back a second time uh, that was one of his skills in handling a young pitching staff that's very interesting Carl uh, in terms of uh, uh, 
concentration on the mound at those points where it's important to make uh, a good pitch, uh, does, does that having an extra 10 seconds or an extra 15 seconds or uh, maybe a moment where uh, the catcher walks halfway out to the mound to throw the ball back to you or even comes out to speak to you, uh, how much of a difference does, does that make? I would imagine it could make the difference uh, between winning and losing a game in, in those critical instances. Um, uh, you know, is it, is it something that made you reflect a little bit more on the pitch you were going to make, or is, uh, you know, the flow of the game just natural anyway? Or does it cause you to sort of think a little bit more about the pitch? Well, first of all, the manager was very strong in pointing out to the pitching staff that you have the right, he would tell the pitching staff, you have a right to shake off a sign from, from Campy. But let me tell you, you better have a very strong reason to shake off Campanella. And the reason is Campy had caught in the winter leagues in Venezuela and Cuba. Uh, he had had so much experience as a catcher that the, the manager forewarned the pitching staff, you shouldn't shake off Campanella. But if you do, you better have a darn good reason. And so Campy really controlled the pitching staff. Now we could shake him off, and 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 he would he would do this little subtle thing of uh, making us wait before he actually gave the sign, and he would shake his head. He would want us to shake just as a a, a setup uh, for for the hitter. We weren't actually shaking him off. We were taking his direction. <laughs> shaking our head before he gives us a sign. So it was just one of the little techniques that he had. And, uh, of course, I, I think I pitched probably 10 seasons to Roy, probably 1,500 uh, in. Carl, who, who was the manager who said that? Was it Shotton, Dressen, or Alston? No, I, I think it was Dressen. Uh, it could mm-hmm. have been Alston. Mm-hmm. It could have been Alston, yeah. Excuse me just a minute. Thank you, are you going now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And Take care, sweetie. Anyway, I had to kiss my wife goodbye. <laughs> Wonderful. Give her well, we, for sure. we're getting used to each other. October 5th, we'll be married 74 years. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Congratulations. That's, That's just wonderful. Yes, congratulations, Carl. <laughs> yeah, she's been through the whole thing with me, uh, the minor legs and the, the whole the whole trip. And I think the, the type of length that you guys have is rare in this day and age, and, and you guys have, have really been each other's rocks for a long, long time. Um, and I, it kind of reminds me of a question I, I thought of earlier, Carl, just in terms of the length of, of uh, both Tommy Lasorda and Walter Alston's managerial career. Uh, and that it's it's also something we really don't see anymore. Basically, two managers over the course of forty something seasons uh, for one franchise. Yeah, right. Close to fifty years, the, the two of them together. Well, 
they were both, as I often refer to Mr. Branch Rickey, uh, I refer to those of us who played or coached under Mr. Rickey, Rickey Disciples. Branch Rickey was such a powerful influence that uh, the two managers of Alston and Lasorda, two of the most different personalities you could ever uh, meet, but they managed under the Ricky training. So in a sense, they both managed very much alike. And now they weren't gamblers, but uh, and Mr. Ricky was, was not a gambler in the sense that he would just uh, shoot shoot and fire, fire and uh, aim later. Uh, he was a thinker, a good, deep thinker in baseball. So what, what you learned from Mr. Rickey uh, was universal. And, uh, and also, you hear me call him Mr. Rickey. Uh, we all had respect for him, and I never heard a player call him Branch Rickey. <laughs> he was always Mr. Rickey. But but he had a baseball mind and was uh, was so he was so innovative uh, in how to approach the uh, strategies in baseball that his influence I would say is still uh, still alive and well in baseball today uh, of the way he thought and the way he, uh, his style but he was very influential to all of us. When uh, when you think about uh, the Ricky men, uh, one of the people who who comes to mind is uh, Clyde Sukforth, uh, uh, the the old coach um, from the state of Maine, uh, and you know of course Sukforth uh, having scouted Jackie and all of that, um, and, and when you talk about you know the the uh, the Ricky method in terms of uh, uh, managing what what are the characteristics there that uh, essentially might have differentiated what Ricky would espouse as opposed to what other managers might employ well Ricky had some unique ideas uh, that were used some in baseball and his the training is where he showed up the strongest in spring training the drills we did uh, you know, he invented the strings. Do you know what the strings are? Yeah, the pitchers. Pitching. Right. Yes. Uh, well, that was his unique idea. And for young pitchers, it, it, it did the thing that it was hard to, to tell as a coach. But with the strings, uh, approximately the size of the strike zone, that the pitcher could actually see the zone, then you could concentrate on – throwing to just parts of the strike zone. Uh, and so that became a very, very unique uh, training technique to spring training to have a strike zone outlined with the strings. And if it hit the strings when you threw the pitch, it was on, uh, they were attached to a post on either side of the plate. Uh, and it was not just tied on the post. It had a spring, so the, the the strings themselves would give if your pitch happened to hit them, so it wasn't anything that would deflect the ball. Uh, and, boy, that 
that was a great idea uh, to have the pitchers be able to see the strike zone and then pick out the corners and the areas uh, to practice throwing to. Uh, it was an extremely unique idea, but it worked, and it helped me a lot. Uh, you know, there's one thing about a curveball. I never heard a coach say this, but if I were coaching, I would tell young pitchers, you don't want to throw a curveball by looking at the spot that you want to start it. You don't want to pitch a curveball and start it where you're looking. You want to look where you want it to finish. And, boy, does that help make you finish the pitch. And when you talk about a hanging curveball, a hanging curveball is a hittable pitch, a home run upper decker. But what causes it is you you don't finish the pitch. You let the, the ball ro- rotate out of your hand too soon, and you don't finish the curveball. And so it hangs up high in the strike zone, and it's hit, very hittable. Well, that was one of the things that the Dodgers really emphasized with pitchers was how to throw the ball where you want it to finish, not where you want to start it. Uh, that's a key to making you finish the pitch. And so my curveball was good. I threw it straight overhand. It went straight down so I could throw it to left-handers, right-handers, and get the same results. So a lot of my strikeouts came against left-handed hitters, which defies the old rule about left-handers hit better against right-handed pitchers. So for me, throwing straight overhand and the curveball broken straight down, it was it was just as effective against a left-hander as it was a right-hander. So you were coming fact, straight down when you were coming working. off that. You were, you were coming straight down with... You were coming straight down with your with your right arm when when you were finishing yeah, the pitch. Well, it, it made you... the rotation. You know, uh, uh, I often shudder when I hear baseball announcers talk about the spin on the ball. A, a baseball doesn't spin; it rotates. There's a big, big difference between a curveball that just spins, and and I always shrug my shoulders and say, kids are going to hear this announcer and think all you have to do to throw a curve is to make the ball spin. It doesn't spin. It rotates. And the the full rotation, and the ball will always break in the direction of the rotation. But if you don't throw a full rotation, so the ball's actually got an axis and it's, it's rotating, it'll break in the direction of the rotation. So all my curveballs were basically either three-quarter or straight overhand. And, uh, and and so the rotation makes the ball break. A kid thinks the ball just has to spin. But I I dislike to hear announcers talk about the spin on the ball because uh, baseballs rotate. Fastballs rotate. I, curveballs rotate. I would think that uh, having strong wrists or a big uh, a big component of that call. You know, there's a magic in a pitching arm. It can throw a fastball that moves and a curveball that breaks sharp. 
the physical makeup of a pitcher's arm is a mystery. When a pitcher hurts his arm, especially in my era, there was no treatment, there was no surgery, there was no a rub down was the best you could do uh, if you injured your shoulder or uh, elbows were off frequently the problem. But uh, <clears throat> but baseballs rotate. Fastball, a good four-seam fastball, rotates with a high. Now, they can measure that today. They actually do, and, and I know you know this, but they can actually measure the rotation of a pitch. And uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, and a curveball is about 25% slower than a fast, a good fastball. So the element of throwing a good breaking ball has two, two elements, the rotation and the speed. Because you can throw it as hard as you want to, but if you put a lot of rotation on it, it doesn't come up there as quick as a good fastball. So the curveball has to rotate, and the, the, the slider is a dangerous pitch. Uh, if you have a good one, it's a dangerous pitch to hit. But most pitchers throw sliders as opposed to a good rotating curveball, and that's the one, that slider that doesn't break is in the upper deck. And I believe me, most of the home runs hit are hit off of sliders. I don't have any proof statistically of that. But what I watch now on TV, they go behind the pitcher, so you can actually see the, the release of the ball, and you can see the break. And the, the, the uh, slider is both the best pitch in baseball if you've got a real good one, and you can throw it to the right spot. It's a it's a deadly pitch, but most pitchers do not have good sliders or good control. And if they throw it for a strike inside, it doesn't break much. And that's that's the upper decker. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. It, it, yeah, I was about to say the same thing, Bob. It's just uh, I I I'm I feel like I'm going to have to listen over and over again to. <laughs> to this podcast specifically this section of it to really you know th- these are the little details that I think a lot of people that that call baseball boring both don't understand about baseball as well as don't understand what a lot of people love about baseball yeah in a way uh, baseball has more going on before the pitch than than during the pitch. Uh, I know that's a hard one to put your head around, but baseball is a thinking game, and you have to know all the time in baseball what you represent. Or You either represent uh, a run that doesn't make any difference because you're behind 10 runs, or it, you have to identify yourself on base. What do I represent? You may be the tying run. You may be the winning run. You've you got to know that, and that dictates how you run the bases. So when you say baseball is a slow game, there's a whole lot going on that you don't see. 
and that's one of them. A player has to know all the time, defense or offense, what he represents. We were talking about uh, five-tool players before, Carl, uh, and uh, just how few of them uh, uh, really are altogether five-tool players. And, and, you know, one of the examples that uh, uh, I might uh, take of a good natural athlete, a tremendous natural athlete, was, of course, uh, Michael Jordan when he decided that he was going to stop playing basketball and uh, uh, become a minor league player for a couple of years and, um, you know, wound up hitting 220 or something like that. And the the whole uh, uh, discussion about preparing for the major leagues and how, of course, the apprenticeships when you played were quite a bit longer because there were certainly fewer teams and there were many more minor league teams do you think anything has been lost in the way players are being prepared for the game today? In, in some respects, um, colleges are serving uh, as apprenticeships for a number of players uh, coming up through an NC2A uh, system for, for several years before uh, they decide to go pro. Is there... Is there an appreciable difference in terms of the readiness of players that you see when you watch a game today in terms of the little things they do as compared to when you played, when everyone uh, who was in the major leagues really had been well-schooled to the extent they needed to be before arriving at the major league level? Well, let let me just give an example uh, as an answer to that question. Uh, you often see a college quarterback is so successful that he goes from the uh, college team directly into the starting lineup in football. Uh, Peyton Manning is a good example. You never, well, never uh, maybe the wrong word, but you almost never see a player come into baseball from college into the starting rotation as a pitcher in the major leagues. There is a necessity to go to the minors to learn the techniques and all the nuances there are to the game of baseball. And so you often see a high school superstar go right into the pros. I don't know I could ever name there's probably an exception to that, but I know know who it is that ever goes from high school or college directly into the major league lineup. It just requires too many uh, training essentials that players just don't do that. They, they have to now Colfax as an example, one of the great pitchers in baseball history. Eventually, he was five years in the major leagues. He was only a 500 pitcher. He was like 36 and 35 or something, one loss record, because he spent no time in the minors at all because of a rule. A $20,000 bonus meant you could not option that player 
to the minor leagues. So Colfax came to us in 55, I believe, right off the sandlots of Brooklyn. And he could not be optioned because he'd been paid a bonus of 20000 I think it was. Uh, and the owners had made that. So it was restrictive on giving bonuses because if you paid over 20000 or more, you couldn't be optioned. So Colfax never had one day in the minor leagues. And so he suffered as a pitcher because he didn't get the benefit of all the training and all the uh, the things you don't see but you got to have to come from the minors to the majors. Uh, he was on the major league bench day one, and he struggled for five years. And uh, finally, Norm Locker was a backup catcher. He talked to Koufax one day, and he said, look, I know you can throw the ball right through the brick wall, but you don't have to do that. You could throw 80% of your fastball, and it moves better. It's got more life. And so he said, you're working too hard. So Colfax, taking that advice, backed off of trying to throw as hard as he could. And at 80%, his fastball was unhittable. It moved so much. So that was a lesson that you you had to learn that. And Colfax suffered for five years. I use the word suffer uh, in the fact that he could not bring out his potential because he had no minor league training. And baseball just almost, without exception, requires that. Carl, I imagine uh, uh, for an opposing hitter, stepping in against a wild uh, Sandy Koufax was uh, a little bit of a harrowing experience. Uh, I would have to think that you were really earning your pay on, on that day. Yeah, you're right. Well, any hard-throwing pitcher this wild, uh, hitters are a little tentative with. But, uh, well, Sandy, uh, he could throw the ball down the middle. That's what he finally learned from, I think, Norm Locker, a backup catcher, was a good pitching coach for Koufax. Because in catching him, he advised him about how much movement he got on the various pitches and so Sandy learned uh, he didn't have to throw the ball through the backstop. Uh, he'd take something off of it on his fastball. It's hard to tell a pitcher who throws hard that it's a good idea to take something off of a pitch. Uh, I had a very good off-speed pitch, so they used to use me to come to spring training to uh, try to teach my off-speed pitch, my change-up. And a guy that throws real hard, you can't get in his head to tell him it's a good pitch to take something off of it. <laughs> he wants to throw it hard every time. But an off-speed pitch well, is deadly. And well, he, pitching, he coaches so now, pitching coaches really? now, all pitchers, almost every pitcher that I see today has an off-speed pitch. And that was rare in my day because it, it's kind of hard to learn. So there's several techniques, the circle change, the straight change, or several ways uh, to grip the ball with three fingers instead of two uh, to take something off of it. But now, if you watch baseball and you know, uh, you know enough to identify the pitches, 
you can tell today the off-speed pitch has become dominant. And uh, changing speeds is is more important than uh, having a fastball that uh, is in a 100 velocity range. Uh, you want movement on your pitch, not not necessarily all velocity, because a lot of pitchers throw hard, but their fastball doesn't move much. It's straight, and those hitters catch up with it eventually. Carl Musial used to say that uh, he would focus on that exact release point, the the place where the pitcher would release the ball and almost put like a little square around that spot in terms of trying to pick up the ball. Uh, were you ever cognizant of uh, releasing the ball in a different way for one pitch as opposed to the other or the need to have everything coming out of your hand essentially looking the same? Was that ever a discussion uh, between you and any of the pitching coaches or, or Campanella or uh, the managers? Well, I learned one thing. You know, I coached at the college level part of my, I think, 12 season, Anderson College, a small school in my hometown. But one of the things that I've learned by coaching you got to be careful when you change, especially a pitcher. Uh, if he has an unorthodox way of pitching, you, you don't try to change him too fast because that may be his uh, biggest asset. Uh, some unique way that he releases the ball that's hard to pick up. So you can't just make everybody look like the book uh, says. And so I learned that coaching in college that you want pitchers who have unique deliveries, uh, pitches that aren't uh, just like the book says, and they're harder to pick up. So I was always hesitant with some of my college pitchers to change them too fast if they had a very unique way of delivering. Now, if they couldn't throw strikes, naturally you got to go to work and find a way to get, improve that. But uh, the uniqueness of the delivery is very, very important to a pitcher. Uh, hard to pick up the ball. I had a left-handed pitcher. He didn't throw very hard, but he could throw the ball over the plate, and he had a little sinker. And and you could pitch him forever. He didn't throw real hard, but he'd get you out. <laughs> so uh, by, I, I digress there a little bit, but that's some of my thoughts about pitching. Is is there anyone that you like today in particular uh, when you when you think about uh, any pitchers who are either a little bit different or who otherwise are um, um, either great great examples of uh, uh, whether they're dominant or or whether they're you know spot relievers uh, or middle relievers or, or uh, finishers, end-of-game uh, closers that, that you really, really admire for their technique? You know, I'm not close enough to the game to know a lot about uh, individuals. Kershaw with the Dodgers has been an erratic uh, pitcher in a way, but he is dominant because he has such an unusual delivery. 
and I think it's hard to pick the ball up from him. Plus, he throws hard anyway. But I'm not mm-hmm. close enough to the game today to uh, uh, to kind of be uh, able to sort out and select different pitchers. But I do like to watch the different pitchers, and I always felt like <clears throat> I threw straight overhand, so my curveball went straight down. I always felt like pitchers who developed a curve that not only broke, but broke down. And same way with sliders. Uh, A flat slider is much easier to hit than a slider that breaks, not only breaks in the direction of the rotation, but breaks down as well as uh, sideways. But the flat slider is much easier to hit than uh, one of, or a curveball. Uh, so I always I watch the pitchers for that. <laughs> Verlander is probably uh, a good example of a pitcher that I think has uh, good control and good uh, breaking pitches that break down. And, and uh, so I uh, I don't know a lot of the players anymore, but he does come to mind when I think about a pitcher that has the kind of stuff that can get out left-handers and right-handers alike. It's unfortunate that we've lost some of that that art of pitching, if you will, the way, like, Tom Seaver could talk about it. I, I think, you know, for myself as a Mets fan, Jacob deGrom really does seem to be going about it in a very uh, a similar way to some of the classics. I'm not sure if you've seen any of Jacob deGrom, Carl, but, you know, I'm I, I'm a little biased, of course, but... You know, he's just been at the top of his game for a few years now. Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with him because I don't get any games even watching on TV. <clears throat> the angles that the cameras are now, you can really look at a picture uh, and, and see a lot of things about him. For me, the, the camera that's behind the mound that shows the glove and shows the hand in the glove I I like that because I could tell, after watching a pitcher a few times, I could tell by his uh, position of his hand and his glove and how he's got the ball held, I could tell what the pitches are. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you that they do that in the majors because if you remember the, uh, was it Houston? Who was it that had uh, used the... uh, uh, television picture in a clubhouse because they could see behind the picture they could see his hand in the glove and call the pitches and or they did some cheating way uh, that they finally got caught but um, I like to watch pictures because with the with the uh, camera behind the picture oftentimes you could see his hand in the glove which you're always taught as a pitcher in pro baseball, the pitcher has to cover not only his hand, but his wrist with a big glove. Uh, or you can pick up uh, the position of his hand if you could see his wrist. So a pitcher's taught early on. In fact, the pitching staff on the bench watches the pitcher who's in the game and he's the manager's instructed the pitchers to watch the pitcher that's out there. Is he giving the pitches away in any way? 
is he stopping one place for a fastball in his delivery uh, over his head and going farther back or some change that indicates a curveball coming. So the pitchers on the staff have to watch each other on the mound to see that some peculiar thing uh, sticking their tongue tongue out for a curveball or some obvious sight that gives away the pitch. So there's a lot of behind the scenes and in between pitches that goes on in baseball that you don't really see. Do you think there's too much science, Carl, and all of these statistics that we that we have now? Do you think um, that uh, this is added to the game or somewhat detracted from uh, uh, the strategic nature of uh, managerial decisions where a manager might go with a hunch and today they're uh, sort of laden with all of these statistics and you know, I'm I'm thinking of uh, uh, Casey Stengel bringing in Kazava in uh, you know the, the end of the 1952 World Series. You know, just uh, and it, it it seemed to work for him where he sort of play these different hunches. And today everything is sort of dictated by all these uh, uh, statistical breakouts that that front office staffs. Uh, uh, come up with and, and sort of uh, give to their managers for uh, making these managerial decisions. Uh, how There's much so of many. that is... is uh... Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, excuse me for interrupting you. Go ahead with the question. No, no, no. That was that was the sum total of it, basically. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, well, how I, all of this has changed the game. It has. And I think, you know, there's one thing about technology uh, that we just have a mindset. If we have it, we've got to use it. It just seems like we go uh, blindly sometimes using technology instead of uh, good process of thinking and analyzing. But, yeah, I think you can overdo that on the bench. But uh, baseball is percentages. So in that sense, more information you have about percentages is a better way to make the final choice in a decision than the book we used to talk about was always in your head how you pitch to a hitter he's a low fastball hitter or he's a a good curveball hitter whatever Uh, yeah I think technology uh, one of the faults of technology is if we have it we have to use it and in a sense it takes away some of your brain power because you're dependent on, uh, you know, I was in the banking business for a long time, and we used to have loan meetings and talk about how to make good loans. Well, now it's all computerized, and uh, if the customer doesn't meet these percentages, he doesn't get the loan. So it takes the brain power almost right out of uh, making decisions uh, on who to make, uh, make the loans to. So that carries over somewhat. Uh, to go by the uh, the book that we used to talk about it was never a book. It was always in our mind, in our in our heads. And uh, the word got around that this guy's a low fastball hitter. Uh, pitchers talk to each other, and so that's how the that's how it happened. But uh, yeah, that's the one thing about technology I just mentioned. Uh, if you have it, you got to use it, and sometimes that's overboard. 
such a beautiful thing, and you're getting a lot of great feedback, by the way, on social media. People are, are fascinated to listen to you talk pitching. And uh, I think we'll have to make an entire podcast focused directly on that uh, next time. It's, so I, I thank both of you for uh, going so deeply into it. Um, and, Bob, just excellent uh, navigation there as well. Um, we, we do need to wrap it up, but before we go, I, I want to loop one more time back to Henry Aaron and, and ask you, Carl, from a personal perspective, uh, any memories that you have uh, off the baseball field of interacting with Hank? I remember the first time I ever faced Hank Aaron. Uh, we all knew that this good hitter had just come in the league. So we went out and watched uh, the pitchers went out on the bench and watched batting practice and watch him hit. So he hit line shots all over the ballpark. But the first time I faced Henry Aaron, we didn't realize until we'd faced him a few times that he was a dead low fastball hitter. And so the first pitch I threw to Aaron was a low fastball, and he hit a bullet to left field on a line. I mean a, a screamer. And uh, Ambrose was our left fielder, and the ball was going to uh, right at him, and it was going to go over his head about a foot or two. And he put his glove up to catch it, and it bounced off his glove. <laughs> and to my surprise, the scorekeeper gave him an error. <laughs> you know, that, that helped my earned run average. But uh, that was my first experience with his uh, time at bat. Uh, he was a dead fastball hitter, a low fastball hitter. And uh, in the early years, he had a lot of line drives that would have been home runs, but he just didn't get them in the air. Uh, later, he started hitting hit the ball in the air, and that's when uh, he started piling up the home runs. Bob, do you have no, one uh, more thing uh, to add? Well, just, yeah, to add, uh, Henry Aaron's uh, wife, Billy, had said, that uh, for however great a baseball player he was, he was a better husband and father. And that's such a great tribute to obviously such a great man. That's a powerful remembrance of him. And uh, he had another thing I remember very well. He was being interviewed and he said, "Uh, what's your theory on hitting? And Henry (laughs) said, my theory on hitting is attack the ball before it attacks you. <laughs> well, that's he a, did. That's the quote I can tell you is authentic because I interviewed yeah. him one time and asked him that. He, that was his answer again, attack the ball before it attacks you. Now, a, a little leaguer is almost always shy at the plate because he's afraid he's going to get hit. So that advice really is important to a little leaguer. Attack mm-hmm. the ball before it attacks you. And and not just score uh, from the the bat perspective either. You can, you know, think about that when going for it with your glove, really, because, you know, uh, just thinking about a kid first learning how to play catch, uh, you know, you're kind of like a little hesitant. You're, you're, you know, uh, you're flinching a little bit too much, and you want to attack it with the glove if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, well... You know, it's a different way of saying it. I've always said that pitching, which is a defensive position, but you have to be on offense as a pitcher. You have to take charge. And even though you're on defense, uh, 
your mindset is to be uh, forceful yourself. Don't always be on your back heels on defense. As a pitcher, you got to be on offense. Take charge. Thank you, Carl, for such a great uh, such a great discussion, and always a pleasure to uh, to talk with you and and uh, to have this opportunity. Those of us uh, those of us from Brooklyn uh, always 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 remember you and your your fellow Hoosier uh, Gil Hodges with uh, the greatest of esteem. Not to mention uh, the Duke of Flatbush and. and Campy and so many others from from that great team. A name that you may remember, Gladys Gooding. Mm-hmm. She yes, was the indeed. organist at Ebbets Field, my 12 seasons playing there. And when I pitched, or Gail Hodges hit a home run, she always played the song back home in Indiana. So at <laughs> Ebbets Field in the 1950s. Besides the national anthem, the most song played was back home in Indiana. That's, that's beautiful a great stuff. Anecdote. And we, I, I want to first uh, uh, thank you, Bob, for joining us today and, and helping to navigate this uh, conversation. Um, it, My it, pleasure. It, again, you know, it's been a, a little while, so thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, I've enjoyed uh, having with Bob on too, and I. Always appreciate it. My, you know, I'm uh, 94 years old. <laughs> All these memories are still as vivid of pitching in the National League for 12 seasons. And my wife says, Carl, you have trouble with the grocery list. How do you remember all that other stuff? <laughs> but I do. Well, there was, there was one time, Carl, where I was giving a talk, and uh, uh, there was a fellow in the back of the room who uh, – unbeknownst to him, was talking to my wife, and uh, uh, he said to her, this guy really knows his stuff. And she said to him, that's all he knows. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you go through the fire, uh, that stays with you a long time. Enjoyed talking with you, Carl. Thanks again, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. Happy to speak with you.